Well, first of all, Costi, I want to extend a, a special thank you on behalf of our men uh, that gather here on Wednesday nights. Uh, the fact that you would travel from Gilbert, Arizona, here to visit us tonight, <laughs> you'd travel all that way just for this, is really a special gift to us. So thank you for doing that, especially flying into LAX, of all things, uh, to <laughs> attend and then come down the 405. Uh, that's in itself a, a special testimony to your graciousness. But we are grateful that you're here. And uh, as we begin uh, tonight, I know that there's some men who, who may not know your testimony. Some men may not even know much about the prosperity gospel, and so we're going to be talking a lot about that uh, tonight. But before we get into that, I want to I read Costi's uh, bio. And when we read this, it's going to sound a lot more mundane than what it really is once we scratch beneath the surface. But let me read this. Costi Hinn is a pastor and an author whose passion is to preach the gospel and to serve the church. He is a graduate of Dallas Baptist University and holds a master's in theological studies degree from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. He is co-author of a book called Defining Deception and a more recent book which he authored himself called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. Uh, was uh, put out in 2018. Uh, Costi and his wife, Christine, have uh, three children in their arms, and uh, they're expecting their, their fourth within uh, about six weeks or so, so uh, the family is about to be enlarged. <laughs> and uh, they currently reside in Gilbert, Arizona, where Costi serves as a pastor at Redeemer Bible Church. Now, that's kind of the official bio, <laughs> but we know there's a lot more to it, and we're going to get into that tonight. But before we do, I want to give you some key terms, and I'd ask that you define them for us as we start tonight, because you're going to immediately start using these terms as you start talking about your testimony. Yeah. Uh, what is the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement? Yeah, the prosperity gospel, I think I'm, am I on? Yeah. The prosperity gospel is the idea that you believe in Jesus Christ and then your life is prosperous in a few areas. So you could add to this, but health, wealth, and happiness, sort of living the American dream. If you believe in Jesus and you place your faith in him, then everything's just going to be fantastic. You're going to live like a rock star. Um, if you're, if you're you know, not living that way soon, you're just on your way there. So I would describe the prosperity gospel on a spectrum of gospel plus, so they get, some of them will get the gospel right in, in some essences, but then add to it, and, you know, your life should be great, happy relationships, and it's all kind of like a, a Joel Osteen fortune cookie. If you've seen him on TV, he's the guy, and everything's, everything's just positive all the time. And then there's, I would think, a darker version of it, which adds to uh, people burdens. It's always God's will to heal. So if you're sick, there's something wrong with you. You know, you don't have enough faith. And your faith is the problem. And if you just have enough faith, God would heal you. That, that side of the spectrum will turn the prosperity gospel into uh, a, a really a damning heresy in the, in the Christian sense. This would be something that doesn't get you to heaven. Uh, God's not actually in it. It's man-made. It's another gospel altogether. It's fake. And so that, I would say, would identify God as more of a cosmic banker. He's up there in the sky if you rub them right by having enough faith or doing a bunch of good works or giving money to the televangelists that are rolling in Bentleys on TV and all that, you do everything they say, 
then God, the cosmic banker, is going to unload money and all your wishes. So cosmic banker or magic genie would be the way I would describe God. So it really turns God into sort of a puppet and makes mankind the puppet master. That would be the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. When you add in terms like word of faith, the word of faith movement would be the, the evil twin to the prosperity gospel. There's some distinctions, but one key one would be they view faith as a force. And so the same way that you have faith in God and it would get you to heaven, like we would teach in Christianity, well, since faith is a force that gets you to heaven, apparently, they would say, well, faith can get you other things too. So just like you believe in Christ and you get heaven, well, you can believe that you're going to have a mansion and make it happen. And all of that links to, if you've heard of the New Age movement, that idea that if you think it, you can become it. Or what some people have said, you know, you can make it happen with your mouth. If you say it enough times, it'll happen. And so all of that, we, we hear that today even from Oprah, you know, whoever, celebrities will do that. You know, if you just believe in yourself, if you just speak it, it'll happen. That would be the, what we're talking about. Now, you used to be a part of that movement. Uh, your last name is Hin, and your uncle, Benny, is considered to be one of the most well-known <laughs> proponents of the prosperity gospel known around the world. So explain what your life was like as you were a part of this movement growing up. You were known as a, a, as a catcher even to catch people who were being slain in the spirit, so to speak. You're an, you're an assistant to, to uh, your dad and, and your uncle in, in, this, uh, in these crusades. Take some time to, to walk us through what that was like for a, a teenager, young man, a young boy, a young man in that movement, and whether along the way you started to see things that were disingenuine, that were not authentic. When you're in the system, what ends up happening is a lot of money will come in. Because if you tell people if you give money, God will do something for you, they'll give money. They're desperate people. You target the, not only the third world and other people who are chasing the American dream, but you target the sick. You can target the wealthy here in America. There's a lot of wealthy people that, you know, want you to bless their business and all that. So they would come to us and ask us to anoint them. So they'd give money. Well, when the millions of dollars start rolling in, it's like a Ponzi scheme. The guys getting the most are at the top. For our family, being centered around my uncle, my dad and a few of the other brothers jumped on board and started doing the same thing, taking the ministry model and duplicating it the way that we would even with churches, you know, take a faithful pastor, train them up, deploy them, we would do the same thing. So my uncles, my dad, they all do that. And they learn from guys like Oral Roberts and Catherine Coleman was a woman who back in the 70s and 60s, she'd wear the white flowing dress. My uncle took her ministry model and duplicated it. Even the way she talked, the way that they would make the stadiums, having the choir, singing the old hymns. I mean, all of it was really just a, a carbon copy. So that starts to happen. Money starts rolling in. And I'm a young guy growing up in it. And I've often described it as growing up in a hybrid between the royal family and the mafia. The royal family, because the lavish life, right? And, and you're, you're very you know, pompous and, and all of that. And then the mafia, because it's very tight-lipped. You don't ever turn your back on family. No matter what they're doing, you never go against it. Even if you see something illegal, you, you don't say anything because blood comes first. So growing up was like that. Now the lifestyle with that is, again, like the royal family and the mafia. Um, 
you know, I drive, drove a Ferrari to an F430 Ferrari to baseball practice one time. Uh, I drove a Hummer with big rims and TVs in the back of the seat. Nobody even sat in the back, and there were TVs on. I was thought I was cool, and you know, ten thousand dollar watches and expensive suits. And we would go shopping in Beverly Hills just because, and go buy whatever we wanted. You know, you live in like a, a, an athlete with a three hundred million dollar contract type thing. So living in multiple houses. I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia. We also had a house here in Orange County overlooking the ocean. My uncle still down there, you know, he lived down there and yeah, people like Tom Cruise and different people in the neighborhood that own houses. And so just picture celebrity or high level athlete lifestyle, only we're preachers and ministers and we're supposed to be healing people and helping people. And our money isn't made by hitting 450-foot bombs or, you know, being LeBron, our money's made by people giving donations because they think we've got a special connection to God that they don't have. So I grow up in that. I see it all. And to answer your question, did I ever have any thoughts or, or concerns? I'm a young man, and pe- kids at school would, would come up to me and, and say, you know, your, your uncle or your dad's a false teacher. And if you're new to church or you've been visiting here, the idea of a false teacher would be the phony pastor, the fake guy. Uh, he's up there, he's, he's, you know, it's a ruse. And they would say, you know, your uncle's one of those, or your dad is one of those, because my dad was getting really popular in Canada, and he was on television. And so, which, to be fair, these young men and women at school were just regurgitating what their parents were saying at home, because they're watching us get dropped off to school in two Benzes, you know, like Richie Rich, and we're just, you're living in the suburbs, and who's this guy? You know, is he a CEO? Does he own a bank? No, he's a preacher. So kids would tease. I would always push back. And the way that I defended it would be saying, yeah, well, you guys go to that dead church. You've got no power. We've got the real power. We've got the real message. And these were like Baptists and other denominations. And so we would push back really hard on that. Uh, And we would say, you know, if you touch the Lord's anointed, you talk about my family like that, God's going to strike you dead. Um, no wonder you're poor and broke or your family doesn't live like ours. It's because you're always attacking men and women of God, so you're never going to be blessed. And so very arrogant, but we were, again, regurgitating what we were taught, which was whenever we're attacked that way, that's the devil. The devil's just trying to undermine our great ministry in our life. As I get a little older, you stop being able to deny everything because you see it for what it is. So I'm in my teens and late teens, and the news is doing pieces and Dateline NBC, and, and they're bringing evidence, and there's employees going rogue, and they're, they're exposing receipts. And, you know, as a younger man, I used to think, well, maybe there's some things we're not doing that are right, but God's got to still be in it. Nobody's perfect. Hey, David murdered a guy and committed adultery. We're just a little bit shady with money, all of that. So you justify things. So over time, those questions got bigger and bigger and bigger, especially while I was even working with my uncle. When you were at the Crusades, with the kind of shadiness that was happening with the, the healings and, and the, the so-called healings, were there times when you, you recognized, no, this is, just, this is just a show? Or were you really convinced, no, these were authentic signs and wonders? Yeah, the, the times that were the most stark in my mind were the contrast moments. So, for example, if we were to go somewhere that was not really flashy and lavish and do ministry, it wouldn't be as obvious. I would really be, be 
enamored with my uncle. I'd think this was great. What a beautiful night. A typical kind of Pentecostal, charismatic approach to ministry. Those nights weren't as bad. You go back and you think that was just some good old-fashioned, regular, charismatic ministry. It was the other trips, primarily the trips that weren't in the local church, but they were in big stadiums. We'd stay, for example, in Dubai at the Burj Al Arab, which is a hotel, the one that's shaped like a sail, you see it on Travel Channel, and we would book the Royal Suite, $25,000 US a night, and we would stop on the way there. We'd fly in a Gulfstream jet, so, which was pretty normal, though, to me. I still wasn't, that wasn't a big contrast. I was like, ah, we got to fly because, you know, we're tired from ministry and we need to rest up because we're really important, and you can't fly commercial because then you get tired, you got to take your shoes off and all that stuff. We don't have time for that. We're men of God, you know, that idea. So obviously we laugh now, but back then I was convinced that this is the way we need to travel. But the hotels were, were, would get me. We're staying in hotels that have gold everywhere, real gold at the Burj Al Arab, and we're stopping at other destinations and we're staying in the presidential suite and the ambassador suite and the you know, royal suite, tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars adding up to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in shopping and food and travel all the way, and we're going to, let's say, India in particular. I'm going to talk about that trip. And you get there, and there's over a million people at the service. We, we had leased acres and acres and acres of land so people could come. And some of this is on YouTube, and, and my uncle's gone back there even in years prior. And you see people, and they're not getting healed. And you think, well, you know, why? Why aren't they getting healed? And you, you hear the promise that Jesus is going to show up physically in some of these meetings that would be prophesied, or God is going to heal everybody. And we would be at, let's say, American Airlines Arena or Honda Center in Anaheim or, you know, in Dallas at American Airlines Arena. And we'd be telling the American crowds, 20, 30,000 people at a time, we're going overseas. God's going to move in huge ways. Give your best offering tonight. We're taking the gospel around the world. One day you're going to be in heaven and someone's going to walk up to you and they're going to say, you're the reason I'm here. And man, that really gets people's tears going. They're thinking, wow. And so you here in Dallas, your ministry is an extension through our ministry. So people are given, you know, three, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollar offerings, sometimes over a million dollars. If you bring in the right fundraiser, um, we would call them money men. And, you know, my dad was one of those and a couple of different guys. When they came in, they were the guys yelling at everyone, you know, go to your phone or, you know, we want you to double your offering tonight for a double blessing, all that hoopla. Well, then you go overseas. People aren't getting healed. You're in and out really fast. You see brokenness. It looks like a war zone, something you'd see in a movie. Those were the nights that I would go back to the hotel and think, and not in a self-righteous way, like I was perfect, just going, God, what in the world was that? Why can't we just heal? So I'd start to get frustrated. I'd ask my dad or talk to my uncle or other family members or workers around, and the responses were, first of all, never question God, and don't question the anointed leader, because you don't, that would be a form of touching the Lord's anointed, um, which again, if you're new to church and visiting and you've been coming here, you're going, what in the world does that mean? That's basically a gag order that says, hey, if you speak against the leader, God's going to get you. And it's a twist on a Bible verse that has nothing to do with speaking against people who are being false. So that's what would be said. So that was really what I would call the, the prosperity gospel gag order. So I was suppressed and told, you know, leave it alone. And then the sovereignty of God would be suddenly a factor. You know, we don't know. God's sovereign. 
And then last thing I'll say is this. People say, well, how do you justify that? You get on a private plane and you feel the leather underneath your pants and your favorite meal comes out without you asking and you're off to the next destination and you start thinking, you know, I'm just in charge of showcasing how good God is. I'm just in charge of delivering the message. I, I can't control all that other stuff. We're going to leave that in God's hands. And suddenly, God's in control. But then pretty soon, we are. So. Now, in light of what you've said, as you look back over your involvement in, in the ministry, and I think you're going to, we'll, we'll get to your conversion in a few minutes here, but you look back over that, you look over it today, are there any who are saved in that? Are, are they just deceived by that feel of the leather and by this idea that twisted scripture text, God wants you to be wealthy and to abide in, in that lifestyle? Or do they know that this is error, they're getting rich from it, and they don't care? How would you describe them? I mean, we, we can't just take a, a broad brush. Obviously, there's variations. Yeah. But how do you look on that, on these those who are directly preaching and those who are, who are really in, in leadership and making the wheels turn for these ministries? Yeah, I find my answer and sleep at night fine with this. 2 Timothy 3.13, uh, Paul tells Timothy, in the last days, evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So that picture right there that he's describing, um, I, in some way, shape, or form, fits that description. There's, there's these evil men, there's imposters, they're people that are doing the wrong thing, they're infiltrating the church, they're deceiving and being deceived. So, and and I, now, now I'll take my experience, and it gets filtered through God's Word, not the other way around. I don't take my experience and inform God's Word. God's Word forms my experience. Well, God's Word's clear that that's happening. I take my experience and go, yeah, I've actually seen that. I've seen men and women knowledgeable about God's Word, knowing what they should preach, and they preach another thing, and then rake in the dollars. I've also seen men and women cry tears of genuine joy or, or passion for whatever they thought God was doing, which was completely, it was a house of cards. It was a shell. There was nothing to it, but they were convinced that they were doing God's work, and I've seen them pray, and I've seen them cry out to the Lord, and I've seen them raise their hands and sing their songs and all of it, and there's no denying that there's a genuine desire in some of these people to experience God, the followers as well. I'd say there's people that follow it who want it. They're really excited about getting rich. <laughs> That's all they want. They don't really care. They're like, yeah, throw Jesus on top like a cherry. Just give me the good stuff. There's those people. There's other people that are there, and they genuinely are, they're on their last leg. Their cancer's terminal. They're begging God. They, they believe God's a healer. They believe Benny or whoever has got the keys to the kingdom on this thing, and he'll do it. So you see both, and, and I've experienced both. So God's Word certainly is true. Now, how are you saved out of that? Tell us the story of mm -hmm. your departure from that movement, how the Lord providentially worked to bring you out, bring you to a true understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all those questions swirling in my mind, I would say put cracks in the dam, so to speak, of my theology. So picture cracks slowly but surely occurring because questions don't get answered, but I suppress them and move on with my life. Three kind of stages. Uh, 
a, a coach in college. I ended up playing baseball at Dallas Baptist University, and my coach, he would always talk about the sovereignty of God, always. And one time we're coming up for a scrimmage huddle, and he goes, bring it in, boys, and we're going to play a scrimmage game. And that day, I think Ryan Goins and uh, Victor Black, Brandon Bantz, who he's, he lives here in L.A. now and works with a Dodgers facility. These guys were, were really good, and they were on my team. So this Yan- a, a Yankee scout is there, and he's on his own, which would happen. Some scouts would come. This happened to be a Yankee scout, so, you know, it's the Yankees. It's a big deal. And everyone's getting real uptight because if you play well at practice, you get on the watch list and all that. Everybody wants to get drafted. Well, he calls us all up and goes, listen, y'all need to relax. Proverbs 21.1 says, the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Listen, guys, God controls kings. He controls scouts. He's got your future. You just go out and play the game. Control what you can control, which is right now, go out and play the game hard, have fun, and get out. So picture a bunch of young guys going, all right, you know, let's do it. And well, I'm sitting there going, hold on. What do you mean God is sovereign? He controls. I'm, I'm sovereign. Like, I control God. My faith controls God. And true story, I'm not making this up. My coach drove a white Toyota Camry, and I got a Hummer in the parking lot. And I got my Breitling $10,000 watch. And here's this Baptist dude telling me that he knows how God works. He's got nothing. I got everything. So I remember that moment clearly, just kind of thinking, sovereignty. Well, how do I get on the good side of that? Make sure it works for me so I get what I want. You know, that kind of idea. I'll never forget that moment, though. It confused me, but I still kind of arrogantly thought, what does this guy know? Whatever. Fast forward, I graduate from DBU. I meet a gal, my wife now, and uh, her name's Christine. She one day decided she wanted to go to Azusa Pacific University for the nursing program, so she goes there. Well, while she's there, she starts hearing about God. She did not grow up churched, and but she's a very black and white, kind of logical, left-brained thinker. My wife would be, she actually worked in HR. She's just that lady that like, right is right, wrong is wrong. There's no fluff with her. Um, she's a great counselor and friend to women a lot of the times because they'll come to her and they'll be emotional and, and all over the place. And my wife will be logical and, and she's normal and has her emotions too. But in the end, you know, she would take the counseling approach of like, what's your problem? What does the Bible say? Why are we still talking? Like, well, come on, let's just... <laughs> Let's go, girl. Like, get on with it. And so, um, you know, she's great for my daughter, and, and we're having another daughter. So the Lord's blessing her with girls that she can raise. So picture Christine, her logical left brain, meets a kid with a Hummer who, oh, what does your family do? Well, um, <laughs> we have Henry Hinn Ministries and Benny Hinn Ministries, and we, do, we, we, we heal people. We, we, we share the gospel. Wow. You guys own like a bunch of flame broilers or something? Where's all the extra money come? You drive a Hummer. Oh, well, actually, you know, you're, all those other pastors you see driving Toyota Camrys, they're missing the point, right? We got the real thing. So picture Christine now asking questions like, well, how does the system work? And how does this happen? And how does this happen? So she starts asking questions. Well, my family catch on to this gal in my life and think, well, we got to fix her. So um, we got to get her to speak in tongues. We got to get her saved because their belief at the time was if she doesn't speak in tongues, she doesn't have the Holy Spirit, she's not saved. It's evidence of salvation. So the poor thing, long story short, goes through a series of, of events. It never works. 
she fell. She put her little hands up, and I'll never forget, you know, she was wearing a little outfit at the service, all dressed up to the nines, and her little heels on and all that, and she's standing there, and she tips back like a board, you know, just like this, and they catch her, and I'm thinking, man, did she get it? Like, they, my family finally will approve, and she didn't. I said, you know, what did you feel one time I asked her? She's like, that was the darkest feeling I've ever felt in my life. That was crazy. And I was like, really? I've never felt that. And you know, I'm sure in the back of her mind, she's like, yeah, because you were drinking the Kool-Aid. No wonder you wouldn't feel it. Um, true believer would feel it and go, there's something weird going on here. So she starts questioning. It doesn't work. We're going to the Bible, figuring out what in the world is the truth. Do you need to speak in tongues or not? So we stumble upon, of course, the providence of God at work, but we think we're just stumbling upon 1 Corinthians 12.30, where Paul says, not all do they. And he's referring to tongues and other gifts. And so, you know, we're tearing up. I think she's off the hook. So we end up going down the rabbit trail on a few more doctrinal beliefs. We think it might be time to separate from my family a little bit. I don't have any real epiphany, though, except we, we probably need to get away from this a little bit. So we do. We end up here in Orange County at a church, and there's other details there, but it would take too much time to go. That would be the whole core of the testimony. So we end up out here at a church that at the time was not solidified. It was a church plant. It was like, hey, whatever's cool, we're going to do it. Whatever sounds good, we're going to sing it. And you know, one week the message was on sex, the next week it was on being a better you. It was just catchy stuff and get people in the door. Well, one day the pastor gets really tired of it, Tony. Um, he's, spoiler, he's in the demon program here now. God messed over the church in the best sense and, and, and got us on track. But at that time, six months into the being together in California, he says, I'm tired of this. I can't create you know, momentum. I'm tired of manufacturing growth. We're going to go through books of the Bible. So we're going to preach out of John, and if people don't like it, whatever. You know, I'm, but I can't come up with a new series every four weeks to make these people show up. Well, you know what that's going to do? It, yeah. Verse by verse through the book of John. So he starts preaching through it and, and starts staying weird stuff. People start leaving. Different things are happening. Well, we get to John 5, and we're cruising along at this point. We have a woman pastor on the staff and she's my boss, and, and all this stuff, and we're just, we're kind of still, you know, v-necks and skinny jeans. Not that there's anything wrong if you wear those kind of clothes. It's fine, but maybe there is. Maybe there is, yeah. Um, we'll talk about that, that a different sure, time. But. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, if you've got sound doctrine and v-necks and skinny jeans, we'll, we'll let you hang still. So the, uh, the series kind of changes our life and changes the church, and then he goes, hey, John 5 is coming up. You're up. So I'm thinking, okay, John 5, 1 through 17, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. I'm like, I got this nailed. I'm a hen. This is passages <laughs> on healing. So I've left my family in the craziness because just some of the pressure and, and the spiritual abuse, I'd say, with my wife and the tongue stuff, I'm going, okay. But I'm still a full-blown, like, you know, prosperity gospel. Heal through you. It's God's will. Oh, yeah, let's do this. And so I go to study, and Pastor Tony says, hey, listen, here's a commentary. This will help keep the train on the tracks. And I'm thinking, okay, I've never used one before. So he tosses it on my desk and it's this burgundy book and there's a signature and it's like John MacArthur. I'm like, oh, whatever. Okay. Some MacArthur guy. Had you ever heard of him up to that point? Well, shades of like his name, but I, it didn't click really? that he's the guy my uncle said 
you know, I want to blow his, his head off with my Holy Spirit That's machine right. gun. That's right. I was going right? to ask you whether you oh, yeah. heard that. Yeah. So okay. we knew about the story. We knew about all of that. But in the end, I didn't look down and go, MacArthur, hey, it's that heretic that doesn't believe in anything, you know, which is what we would have said at the time, a very, very untrue statement, um, as if that needs to be said and clarified. We all know the truth. But I look, like, okay, whatever. So at the time, Pastor Tony had taught me a few things, you know, one was OICA method, which is observation, anyway, I won't bore you too much, interpretation, correlation, application. So making observations, and I'm... You're just reading the the biblical text. Yeah, I'm just going to observe the text, and it was this exact Bible that I still have, and it's John 5, and I'm looking, and I'm thinking, you know, this is really interesting. You know, one guy, one guy out of a multitude. I thought Jesus heals everybody. Well, that's kind of odd. I'll write that down and need to revisit that. And I keep going down and I'm thinking immediately in verse 9, no process, no music, no jacket, no, hey, keep on believing. No, who's feeling less pain right now? Oh, praise God. for Let's give them a hand. Praise God. There's, that's a, amazing. We did that all the time. In fact, people still do that today. Or Somebody have ringing in the ear, you know, somebody raises their hand to get on stage and get prayed for. Is it there now? No, I don't think it is. Oh, praise God, another miracle ringing in the ear. Like, come on, like Jesus healed ringing in the ear. Like, so I'm thinking immediately, this guy's crippled. And Jesus goes, arise, take up your pallet and walk. Instant healing. So you go on and he, he you know, carries his pallet, walking around. The Pharisees go, hey, it's Sabbath. And they had all these extra, you know, laws and extra burdens, if you will, not even real laws. You can't pick up a pallet. You're working right now. Who told you you could pick up your pallet and walk? And he goes, you know, I don't know, the, the guy who healed me. And John records something very interesting. He didn't know who Jesus was. So that got me. The other two were intriguing and sort of like, uh, hey, that's different. Him not knowing who Jesus was wrecked me, I thought. How did he get healed if he didn't know who Jesus was? How do you have enough faith if he didn't know who Jesus was? How did he do anything for God? If he doesn't know who Jesus was, how did he get his healing? You got to do something. This doesn't make sense. So I grabbed the commentary and I thought, I'll try this thing out. We'll see what happens. So I grabbed the commentary. I turned to the section and, you know, MacArthur just tees off. (laughs) There it is plain as day. And I see the Greek word for, for him not knowing, and it's like not even perceiving who Jesus was. Yeah. So he doesn't even have a clue. Yeah. So the notion that he had a little bit of faith or, or an idea that this was, you know, God, that's crushed. Yeah. Well, MacArthur then tees off and says, this is a great example. Here we see the sovereignty of God in action. And I'm going, that word again, coach said he's sovereign. He does what he wants. Yeah. He's in control. And I mean, milliseconds, it's happening in my mind really fast. The the scales, if you will, are falling from my eyes. Everything's making sense. And MacArthur continues because he just doesn't let his foot off the gas at all. And it goes from sovereignty of God, Jesus in action, right here is his power. Then he goes, and the cruelest lie of faith healers today is that the people they fail to heal are guilty of negative faith, unbelief. I mean, some of that's a direct quote from the commentary. I think it's upper right quadrant, if my memory remembers. And I'm highlighting. And at that point, I start crying. I'm weeping in my office going, that, that's us. Mm. That was what we did. That's what I, 
He's sovereign. You can't turn it into a formula. He does what he wants. He heals who he wants. And I remembered the woman with the issue of blood, and I remember other times Jesus moved with people who had faith, and then, but here's a guy who doesn't. I thought, you're sovereign. You're in control. You're God. You're the master. We exist for you. We do it. You're in control. Like I kept thinking it in my mind. So I'm bawling at that point. So I, I literally repent. And I said, I'm so sorry for ever thinking it was me that was in control. I'm sorry for anything I've ever taught, believed, any money I've ever made, anything I've ever did. I'm done. I, I vowed to God to preach the true gospel. Amen. I said, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll serve you. And so I'm, I'm weeping just like a baby all over my, my legal pad and my notes and computer and just, it's over. Mm. And so at that point, I would say in my mind uh, that that was my, my conversion um, I've had other guys like, you know, Justin Peters is a dear friend now, and he has said before, you know, clearly you were being drawn for, for a time before. So, you know, there's that. And other pastor friends have said, yeah, you, you might have been converted prior because an unconverted man doesn't, doesn't want those things. So the heart, something was happening. So we've all coined it kind of collectively. That was my grace awakening moment. I don't, clearly the Lord did something in my heart before and was drawing me and I was open to the truth, yeah. which, you know, you can't want the things of God yeah. unless he does something yeah. in you because he's a sovereign God. Yeah. But me, for me, that moment was it. Yeah, let me pick up on two things that you just said. I'll get to the sovereignty thing in just a moment. But, you know, you, you described this story about reading the biblical text. It's a healing text, and you're seeing things for the first time. Mm -hmm. Describe for us among your family members and, and in a, on a larger scale, the, the kind of Bible study that is done by prosperity gospel preachers. Yeah. I mean, they have their, their manufactured sermons and their phrases, and they practice them over and over, the manipulation, emotional stuff. But do they ever actually open the Bible and just read it and do what you were doing there with John 5? Is that just something completely foreign to them? Yeah, the idea that the text would speak and we would be quiet, is not a common thing. The text is there, and then we impose our idea, or we read it, and even if the text speaks loudly on something, we look at it and think, okay, now how can that fit into what I need to deliver to these people because my system requires that I do this? So you could even take John 5 and preach that three or four different ways, you could emphasize the angel uh, at the pool. To be honest, you could even stick with the storyline that the man didn't have faith and he was a complainer. You know, oh, he's whining at the pool. You know, Jesus did it anyway. You know, some of you, you're complaining, you're whining, you're murmuring, and that man right there is a reminder to you that God has been gracious to you. He's been faithful to you. And oh, sure, he's done some things in your life, but it's time to quit complaining and start having faith and believe for your breakthrough. Amen? Amen. And everyone starts clapping. You know, take that. That's not what that means at all. Yeah. Yeah. But that's where it goes. So yeah. take the text, yeah. twist it to what I want to preach it mm -hmm. to mean and preach it to apply. Yeah. Whereas for the first time in my life, I had begun realizing this book does the talking, I do the walking. That's right. It determines what I preach, yep. not the other way around. And when we come to the text that way, realizing that God has spoken and I must listen, that's when you see regeneration taking place, where we are born again by that word.
Now, the second thing I wanted to pick up on was you mentioned the doctrine of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And why does this doctrine of sovereignty run so antithetical to the Word of Faith movement? I think of Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. That would ruin the whole system. That ruins everything. In the prosperity gospel and in, in any forum where men are, are power-hungry and trying to dominate and, and play God with their God complex, yeah. a God that's in control and a God that is in authority and a, a word that is sufficient and inerrant and authoritative would govern everything. Well, therefore, I can't govern. Yeah. I can't do what I want. I can't follow my lust of the flesh, my lust of my eyes, my boastful pride of life. I can't obtain and covet and desire and grab onto. So the prosperity gospel is that. It's a system that wants to make money. It's, it's, it's overcome with greed. That's why in 2 Peter 2, you know, verses 1 through 3, those first three verses, Peter's making the thought really clear in a chapter that's entirely about false teachers. He says, in their greed, they will exploit you. Yeah. That's what they want. That's what we wanted. That's what I desired. It was to be rich. It was to be uh, in control. And really, in the end, not even to be known. It was to be rich. Yeah. It, you could be unknown. That would be actually better because then you have less attention, yeah. less controversy, and less news people flying helicopters over your house. Yeah. To be rich and unknown, to be left alone is like the ultimate and in, in, in control of your yeah. empire. Yeah. So the sovereignty of God crushes all that. It demands that we are human and God is divine. It demands that we be finite and He be infinite. It demands that we follow mm -hmm. and He lead. I trust and obey. Mm -hmm. He commands. I mean, yeah. that, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. And people hate authority. Yeah. All of us do deep yeah. down. But you know, when yeah. greed and power are driving us, you don't want to listen to God. That's the, the most hated doctrine, you know, that the sovereignty of God and how that comes out in all false religions and in some way that doctrine is attacked and man is elevated and, and, and God is demeaned and dethroned. We'll come back to some of these theological ideas, but one question related again to your testimony. Uh, having come to truth saving faith, Christ drawing you to himself, uh, your relatives obviously heard about that. How do, they, how do they look on that? How would they explain that? And then even beyond that, how do they relate to you today? You're, you're a preacher. You're a preacher of the Scriptures, not a prosperity preacher. So what's the relationship like? Yeah, so now, I'll give you the, the now version and then walk you back a bit. Um, my dad and mom, you know, my dad, I texted with him today, and um, he sent an encouraging message. And when I, I preached here last year on Palm Sunday at night, and my parents were sitting in the back um, at Grace Church. The roof didn't cave in on all of us. It was, it was great. Um, the elders were praying that they would come, and I preached uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17, preached the gospel. They were proud, and they came up, and they gave me a hug, and um, I think they saw, like, Michael Mahoney, and they were welcomed graciously. So picture now that, and, and there would be differences, right? If my father and I had a discussion, there are going to be differences, um, some core differences. And... Uh, my mom, maybe a little less, but I, an example last year, my Shepcon bundle, book bundle, yeah. I, I sent her over like two or three of those books. She devoured them. Mm. Um, Arthur Pink, The Sovereignty of God. Yeah. She, yeah. she read and reads books like that. So that would be now. Yeah. 
some differences, certainly, and some things that I would not agree with, and decisions and ministry partnerships and even associations, I would say, that's, that's dangerous. You don't need to be anywhere near them. However, there's a bridge there where we talk about the gospel. Um, I don't just go hang out and flippantly go, oh, whatever, bygones be bygones. They know my stand, and, and it's there. I'll walk you back to, oh, sorry, my uncle doesn't really want anything to do with me still. I send him a message. We can talk a little bit about repentance versus remorse. Yeah. Also, I know yeah. there was a question about that. Um, there, there always is now because that's such a big issue. He and I don't have a relationship still. Mm-hmm. And then um, siblings, cousins, et cetera, are, are pretty distant. So I'll walk that back. For the first two years, I went cage stage on everyone. And if you're not familiar, so cage stage, when you come into contact with the truth and, and the doctrines of grace and God's word, um, cage stage is called cage stage because it's probably best that you be caged <laughs> for a little while. Um, the lest, emotions are yeah, pretty hot. Lest you say something foolish and hurtful that you regret or just too aggressive. Well, that was me. I called my parents and I got my MacArthur study Bible out, <laughs> and uh, I had, was fresh off of watching Strange Fire, and I was on fire. I mean, it was over. <laughs> so I sit my, my parents down in our dingy little apartment in Tustin, California, <laughs> and I start reading 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and then I look up and I say, you are not that. You're a wolf, which not a good idea to call your, your Middle Eastern, hot-blooded Arab father a wolf when you're in cage stage. It's just not a recipe for, for a good relationship. So moral of the story, I played hardcore offense, they played hardcore defense, and round and round we, rent, we went in an explosive debate. Um, and of course, I was right in all the wrong ways. So the Bible, it is true. We weren't free from the love of money. Uh, they were not temperate. Some of the people in the circle weren't the husband of one wife. Uh, they did not have a good reputation with outsiders. I mean, go down the list. Yeah. Not even close. Unqualified. Not fit for ministry. Not God's man at all. But the way that I delivered that was so aggressive. And, and I never asked questions. I just, mm-hmm. I, I just hit them. I bulldozed. That creates a wedge. Then I have a couple of family members that partner and, and jump on board and start working with um, Bethel Church, Bill Johnson, that circle. And so when I pushed against some of the doctrinal heretical teachings that they anchor their ministries to, I had touched the spiritual fathers of some of my other family members and siblings. And so um, their apostle and their prophet were now touched. And everyone needed to stay away from me or else God was going to strike them. And they viewed it the way it struck me. I'd lost everything. We were, my wife and I shared a little Kia. Like We bought the cheapest car that money could buy. We lived in a dingy apartment across from a weird motel where everyone did drugs. And I was like, we're in ministry. Like This is the real deal, people. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. You, you shop at Kohl's when, they go, when things go on sale. We're <laughs> still going to Versace. Yeah, back. you got to yeah. use the cash back. <laughs> you, know, like you can only buy when you get the cash back. And they're still shopping at Versace laughing, going, oh yeah, yeah, you really, you keep your truth. <laughs> Clearly it's working. No, God's judging you, Costi, because you're coming against the anointed. So they wanted nothing to do with the truth, 
and nothing to do with me because I was a, a red flag in the family. So a lot of that's still the same. But my parents and I, over the years, I learned not because I'm so wise and, and such a great expert. I learned by failure mm. how to communicate and build bridges in a way that didn't compromise the truth, yeah. but allowed them to be them. I mean, I can't control, they're who they are, yeah. but I can stay on the shore of safety and yeah. throw ropes yep. as, as often as they're breathing and alive. So I've learned some of that by, by mistakes. Let's uh, pick up on that and, and take that a little bit farther in terms of of those here who may have come out of that movement and they may be still in that cage stage that you talk about and you talk about in your book as well that where the, the emotions are there and there's this reflection on all the money that has been given and and not taking maybe children to the hospital and all the you know the failure to get disease diagnosed rather than just waiting on healing and so there's this anger yeah. of what the these these charlatans have, have done. Yeah. What counsel do you give to them about how they treat those, maybe their family members, maybe their friends who led them into that movement, yeah. and now they're angry? Yeah. What do you say to them? Yeah, first I want to affirm that those emotions and frustrations are, are real and honest and normal. You will feel that, but feelings don't drive the bus. You do. You have to. And if we're the ones to put it in an us versus them, which I don't recommend we do often. We don't need to make a big war out of it all the time. Their qualm is with God and his truth. We're not God. But for an illustration, the us versus them. If we're the ones that have the truth, and we're the ones filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're the ones that bear real fruit and know what is right and what is wrong, and are willing to live and walk in obedience, then should we not be the example of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Self-control, that's what we have to have. So you take the emotion of anger to the foot of the cross, the way you take anxiety and you cast it on the Lord, the way you take lust or uh, temptations to, to steal or to shave off the top at work, you know, an expense budget or do, do the way you would take any sin and any temptation to sin. You take that and those emotions to the Lord, and you give it to Him. You go, you're God, I'm not. They're going to deal with you one day, and then do your job. Do your ministry, which is what? Same thing Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. You go 1 through 5, preach the Word, okay? Be ready in and out of season. Do this, do this, do this, and then what does he end with verse 5? Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You got to endure hardship. You got to go through it. Tim, you do what you're going to do, and then one, two verses prior, People are going to turn aside the myths. They don't want the truth, all that stuff. He doesn't tell Timothy, you know, I know you're angry, so, you know, let them have. He just says, do your ministry. So, again, if we're the ones with the Holy Spirit, we should be bearing fruit, self-control. All the other commands, I'm thinking of Colossians 4, uh, being gracious, being gentle, correcting. Uh, Ephesians 4, we want to be seasoned in our speech. All of that applies, if anything, to us. We're the ones that believe in the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, and we're the ones that believe in being obedient and striving for that by the grace of God. So that's a tough thing. People, yeah, but what about, and but what about, and I, I, I point myself and all of us back to the Bible and go, yeah, and what about the fact that we've been saved, and our eyes have been opened, and we say that this is our authority, 
So yeah, what about all that? Yeah. Let's do what this says. Yeah. And then from there, with controlled emotions, mm -hmm. we can actually begin to be more effective in reaching the lost. And, and Paul says it so well in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25, about not being quarrelsome yep. and, and speaking patiently, teaching with, with great endurance, if perchance God may grant them repentance. If we truly believe in the sovereignty of God, how can we use anger to try and get back at those who, who are in the movement? Yeah, you can't. And that's the Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Yeah. That... That's the goal. You're never going to compromise the truth. I think that's what people sometimes feel. They feel that if they are nice or if they're patient or gentle or if they sit for a coffee and let another person explain their view that, you know, the heresy hunters are coming and they've compromised the gospel. No, listen, understand. And one time I was sitting with a, a biblical counselor and it was early on in our marriage. My wife and I, this great moment where... Um, I, she did not agree with something, and we were thankful at that time, been converted in, in that first year. So we go see a biblical counselor. We're getting wisdom in marriage. Now to how to navigate all the craziness of life. And um, the counselor looked at us and said, so you guys realize that you, you can understand one another a little more, right? And I remember me and my wife both being very comfortable. Well, no, because I, I don't agree. And he, he looked at me, and he looked at her, and he kind of threw us both a bone. He said, Costi, do you realize that you can understand that your wife is being emotional? And I was like, yeah, I could do that. I understand that she's wrong and she's getting emotional. And he's like, well, hold on, hold on. Hold on. So could you understand though where she's coming from? Yeah. And then he looks over at Christine, could you understand that after all the years he's been through of chaos and not knowing how to lead, that he's probably a terrible leader? Couldn't you understand? <laughs> I'm going, hey, that's not fair. This way. It's, yeah. Can't you guys understand that you're going to need to devote yourselves to the Word and patience and gentleness and, and walk through biblical count? And suddenly we understood. Well, it became okay then to listen. Well, we need to do the same. I can understand why someone's trapped in heresy because they're obeying the deeds of the flesh. They're a slave to sin. They want this. Well, now I can think, all right, well, how can I listen? And then look for inroads to ask more questions and go, well, do you see where all that's going to lead to emptiness? Has it led to emptiness already? You ever sit up at night wondering where all this goes? Well, yeah, but I, you, know, you get people talking and thinking, yeah. knowing that you understand them. They stop playing so much defense. They start opening up, and pretty soon, you're the first phone call they make yeah. when all heck breaks loose, if you will. Actually, some of it's all literal hell in their life, mm -hmm. the enemy and the assault of false doctrines, yeah. and you're the rope. Yeah. We're going to come back to that council right near the end. Uh, about how we try to rescue those as instruments of God in His hands, how, do we, how we try to rescue those who've been caught up in the movement. So keep that thought fresh. But I want to switch gears here just a little bit. The, one of the questions here that one of the men asked was, the word, of the, fa the word of faith movement has been exported around the world, particularly to poor countries where people are high, highly dissatisfied with their basic standard of living and are desperate to improve their circumstances. Why does this happen? Why are the poorest always the most vulnerable to this movement uh, where the, the, the preachers are driving around in the Bentleys and coming in on, on private jets and staying in $20,000 a night hotel rooms? Why is that? Yeah, there's two key 
target audiences that are guaranteed to make a payday in the prosperity gospel. The very desperate and then the very poor. The very desperate, that's easy. I can sell a person with a child who's terminal a false narrative and false hope because they will go for anything. They'll go for experimental chemo treatments. They'll go for experimental drugs. And they'll go for, hey, cut me a check. How much is your child's life worth to you? Exercise your faith, which is horrific, but, but reality. Over here, the poor, which is what the question really anchors on, well, that's an easy payday too. They want the American dream. So I roll in with, you know, my nice suit and a little dove on it and some nice shoes and I look like a hot shot and I've got it all figured out and I put on a great show in the production. I invite them to it. So now it's even outside of their element. They begin to see all that they want, all of this grandeur, all of the pomp and circumstance. Now, whatever I say, really, I've already got the power play. I'm rich, I'm American, or I'm linked to Americans, which is why you see so many now African prosperity preachers doing what? Anchoring their ministries to, like Chris uh, Oyakalahome, I don't even know, the, the last name escapes me pronunciation-wise, but he anchored himself, he wears a white suit, he's like the, um, the Nigerian Benny Hinn. Um, you've got guys in South America like Cash Luna, his name is actually Cash, I mean, it's ironic, but it's true. He's the Benny Hinn of South America, you have all these different guys. Well, they anchor themselves to T.D. Jakes and Joyce Meyer and Osteen and Paula White and all, and they get endorsed, and all of a sudden, all the people in the region are going, they've got that thing, and then you sell them that. If you follow me, if you do this, then God is going to pull you out of the gutter. He's going to heal you. He's going to bless you. He's called you to be the head and not the tail. You are the top and not the bottom. You are royalty. You're a royal priesthood. Royal priesthoods don't live in the gutter. Uh, they don't wear, they, they wear royal robes. How many of you want royal robes? I mean, you, you could play this thing out. It's ridiculous. But that is why, so the desperate and the poor, um, you sell them what they need or what they want most, and it works. And they'll give anything to, to get what you're, holding out to them. I remember being in South, South Africa two years ago and seeing the billboards there advertising this kind of stuff. And in the middle of these impoverished townships, these massive word of faith churches, and you just think how they're fleecing those people day after day after day. There was one report even of, of one of these preachers spraying insecticide on his congregation. I don't know whether it was a form of casting out demons or, or whether it was kind of a snake handler kind of stuff, but just that kind of, of, of physical and, and spiritual abuse of, of the flock. And it's really rampant in Africa and yeah. in these poor countries. At the same time, what would the prosperities, prosperity preachers say about going into to, to northern, to North Korea or Uzbekistan? Yeah. Is there any talk about we, we've got to go try and, and minister there We've got to bring the gospel there. Yeah. You don't see them in these contexts of uh, where, where the persecution of, of Christians is, is life and death. Yeah. So this is like a moving target. It gets slippery, which, you know, Satan's good at that. A couple different approaches. You will see certain prosperity preachers, the ones that are really smart, 
go into these countries for philanthropic work. You know, Joyce Meyer with an orphanage or, you know, my uncle is going to go kiss some babies in the Philippines or what have you. They'll do that for appearances. They're going to film it. They're going to put some music behind it. And they're going to show you their softer side. Look at what we do for the poor, okay? It is strategic because you do a little bit of that and you get a whole lot of this, a lot of money and a lot of American money. So there's that approach. So you'll see some of that. Um, the other approach you'll see is to avoid it completely. They're not going to these countries, clearly. The third approach is they'll go to these countries, put on a massive production, if you will, take offerings, sell the people you know, some bogus prophecy that God's going to bring revival and He's going to set the captives free, get them all excited, bring in maybe a local celebrity singer or someone that they identify with, take your offerings, and then run for the, the private plane, get to the tarmac, and get out of town. So those three approaches I've seen, and none of those, none of them mirror the true work of gospel ministers and of Christ. Of shepherds, you think of Jesus who would spend time with right. the people and not be ashamed to, to be among them. Another question here, and, and this relates again to how we deal with uh, in this case, it, it, this question relates to how we deal with those who are silent about the errors of the prosperity movement. And here is the question. There are many Christians, even pastors, who may not buy into the message of the Word of Faith movement, but they don't say anything against it. They would never go to the Crusades or join these churches or read the literature, but at the same time, they believe it is important to preserve peace, and therefore they refuse to raise any criticism or warning about the movement. Despite knowing its errors, they remain silent. Uh, what would you say to them? And, you know, to follow up on this question, you know, this silence is what has allowed this movement to, to prosper, is that good men mm. have done nothing. Yeah. Good publishers, I think it was even Thomas Nelson, published your uncle's book, yeah. Good Morning, Holy Spirit. Then had to make corrections to, his, it was a heresy. to his heresy after. Uh, just recently, there was a very well-known evangelical college that invited someone in yep. who claims he was in a village in Myanmar and healed everybody was, who was there. Yep. It's as if it's, a, it's its own prosperity scheme where these yep. publishers, seminaries, and even churches yep. refuse to call these people out and they benefit from that supposed unity that they yep. preserve. What, what would be your counsel, even to a much more practical level, to those of us here sitting in these pews who are not necessarily pastors, elders, seminary professors, mm -hmm. what do we do yeah. to speak out? How should we not remain silent? Yeah. So this is the hard truth moment. Not everybody likes, and I mean this in love, but... Uh, people who don't say anything and they know there's an issue, you know, silence is passive agreement. And they say, I don't agree. What are you talking about? No, you, you, you're passively agreeing. You're not saying anything. You're just letting them do what they do. Uh, you need to look at the Bible and read the text and decide you're either going to obey God or not. You're either going to follow Christ or not. 
You're either going to stand for him or not. It's, it's really black and white. The only time it gets confusing or blurry is when we confuse or blur the lines. Pastors who refuse to say something because they need to watch their bottom line, they've built a system and a monster that they now have to feed. They think that standing for the truth means having a few essentials on their doctrinal statement, but then saying whatever with everything else. Um, there's catchy one-liners that are, I think, some, there's some truth to them. You know, we want to be known for what we're for, not for what we're against. Okay, uh, you know, I, I think it's a great illustration. Talking with someone recently, he said, you know, yeah, we don't want to be known for our foul poles. You know, nobody's known for their foul poles. Um, we want to be known for what happens between the lines. Well, it's a great analogy, you think, unless you're the guy who makes the foul poles. You really want to be known for your foul poles. You're making a lot of money selling foul poles. It's, it's kind of a, a false dichotomy, though, or an analogy that it, it sounds good, but all it does is evade the reality. Um, you have to be known for Ephesians 5.11, not participating in the deeds of darkness, but exposing them. You have to be known for Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, to mark the literally scopeo, mark those, put a scope on them, mark on those who are causing division. They're teaching things that are contrary to what Christ taught. I mean, I I don't know any way around what the Bible says to do. So my counsel would just be to look at Scripture and do what that says, and then our job, this goes for pastors, this goes for men in the home, is not to people please. So the job isn't to, to make the, the, the peanut gallery happy and to please the fans shouting at you from the nosebleeds or to even please the money people in your church. We have to please the Lord. We do what He says and honor His Word and I, I think this too, I think people don't have enough faith in God and His Word. You want to talk about having enough faith. I don't think pastors realize how contagious conviction is in the right sense. It, it sets off a chain reaction. If one guy or, or a family or even women in the church will set themselves on fire and invite the world to come watch them burn, that's exciting. Why has the church always thrived in times of persecution? It doesn't die. Why? Because people realize, oh my goodness, these crazy people are actually going to die for this? It must be real. People get saved more during persecution eras than they do when there's not. So my, my counsel or encouragement or exhortation, um, I get a little fired up about this topic in particular, is you know, do something. Stand up. Um, toughen up. Answer the bell. Do what Christ has called you to do. Especially as men. Right? Amen. And, and when you look at so many men in the, the church at large today, they're the ones not reading the books. They're not studying the theology. Right. Women are buying more books. Women are reading more than the men. And, you know, many conversations around the table is the, the, the husband, the, the father is quiet, and the, the mother yep. is the one who's instructing the kids. And the, the, the man in the home simply isn't a man. Yep. And he's not speaking up. He's not speaking out. He's not, he's not admonishing his, his neighbors, his friends, his mm -hmm. family members. You need to stand up. You need to speak the truth. Absolutely. Guys aren't going to get to heaven and, you know, the Lord say, hey, great job keeping the peace, being passive. Hey, great job building the bottom line in the church, guys. You know, calling up a bunch of elders from one of these churches that won't stand for truth. Hey, great job pleasing so many people and inviting the unchurched in and making a church where everybody could come and nobody would be uncomfortable. 
Great work, fellas. You know, come on in through the gates. I got a lot of rewards for you, especially over here. No, that will be called unfaithful. That is the, the, the servant that buried the talent. That's the, the wicked servant. You, they're souls. They're God's people. We have a responsibility. So I think more pastors today than maybe ever before would be amazing CEOs, entrepreneurs, restaurant owners, tech gurus. Like, go start a business and be one of those great employers and, and make everyone happy and keep the peace. You don't belong in the pulpit. I think Steve Lawson was quoting um, either Quis, Criswell or Baxter. He was, he was quoting someone who was quoting someone who said, the problem with preachers nowadays is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. You know, there's a problem because men of God aren't actually being men of God. They won't stand for anything. And then they listen to everybody when they say, oh, too harsh, too intense, lighten up. You know, what if all the men throughout history lightened up? No one would have stood for truth. Yeah, and, and related to that, I don't, I don't know, perhaps we have some guests here tonight from other churches, but what would you say to the, the man who is, is not being a leader in his home and instead he's, he's just taking the easy way, he's bringing his family to this, this church that may not be fully into the prosperity gospel stuff, but it's therapeutic. You know, you go there to feel good. Uh, and it may even be, you know, tongue speaking and, and healing stuff, but there's some Bible mixed in it. But it's, it's just not a safe place for his family, and his family isn't getting the Bible, that which saves, as you mentioned before, from yeah. John 5. What do you say to that man? Address that man. Tell him what he needs to do for his own soul's sake and for the sake of the souls of his family. Yeah. So two responses. One, if you're ignorant of that and you just don't know, then there's a lot of, a lot of grace and patience with you. You need to learn. Uh, you need to study. You need to read. You need to do what, uh, you know, lots of men do when they don't know how to you know, fix a leak in their house, but they have no money to hire a plumber. You go on YouTube, you DIY it, and you save your family some money, right? You got to figure it out. So there's that. So figure it out. Study the Word, Come visit a church like this if you're not going to leave your church yet. Go to some classes, read some books, all of that. So find out answers. So the, a lot of grace and patience for not knowing. However, for you guys that know and you've been lazy with your decision making and you've been passive and you sit at the dinner table every night and you got it on cruise control, you're going to be on the hook with the Lord. Uh, you get to, I don't whatever your eschatology is, but I'm, I align with here. So you're going to get to the Bema seat judgment if you're a believer. And Christ is going to call you forward. And here's what, how I picture it illustratively. I picture him calling me forward, and then he's going to hit pause on it all, and, and all the other believers will be standing there too, and everything's going to be known. And then he's going to say, bring Christine, Titus, Grace, Timothy, and Ruth, them forward as well. And it's not their judgment. He's just going to spin my wife around, his princess, and he's going to take a good look at my sons and my daughters, and then he's going to look at me. And the question will be, are they better off having been under my leadership than had they not been? That moment is coming for every one of you men and for me too. So if you're leading your family to a church that isn't rooted in truth and you're passive in that, you're going to answer to the Lord. You don't answer to me. I got to answer to the Lord myself. 
Brad does as well, and every man does. But if while we're still breathing on earth, the challenge to you and the call to you is what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? They're not doing anything for you. You'll find new friends. You'll make a new family. You'll get the truth. Your children are going to leave you pretty soon and go off into college. They won't know how to defend their apologetic. They're not going to know why the Bible is reliable. They're not going to go know why they can't go be another gender. They're not going to know why they can't date the same gender. They're not going to go know why uh, their friend should not be an atheist. They probably won't even know how to articulate the gospel because you've been sending them to a youth group where they play chubby bunny and kind of hang out and listen to rock music, and you've not been doing your job. So that would be what I, and I say that in love, there's no time to waste. Stop playing around. And if you're that way in that area of your life, you're probably that way in other areas of your life. So it's really probably a good idea to get around some men who will sharpen you. Proverbs 27, 7, well, I like verse 6 too. Uh, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Find some buddies that are going to wound you and say, hey, get your head in the game, get your head out of the sand, pick up your sword and learn how to use it because your family is your, your responsibility. So that would be my call to men today. Great book, if I could recommend one, by Tim Chalice called Run to Win. How many of you guys have read that or heard of that book? Anybody? Good. So lots of you are going to, it's a short book. Yep, yep. Great book. If you're at ShepCon next week, buy it. Run to Win. Mm-hmm. It's the like coach kick in the pants, man moment uh, for Bible men that want to get serious. So I say that in love, but get that book. That's good. We'll come back to some more practical questions in just a moment. Some other ones related to your family. Here were some that were uh, interesting that some of the men uh, gave to me. One was this, does Benny Hinn ever get sick? Does he take medication? Does he go for medical checkups? Answer that one first, and then I've got a second follow-up question to that. So does he get sick? It's a fair question. I told you I'd answer anything that they asked. So, um, yeah, my uncle, so the news has come out various times and talked about his heart condition or speculation of this and that. The news, it's not rumors. These things get out. My uncle's had a heart condition for, for years, um, and that's just known in the family. So, yeah, he takes medication and um, has to monitor his heart condition. And so, yeah, that's, that would be So true. he goes to see a heart specialist. Yeah, and goes yeah. to and and, it, and is very uh, has to be very health conscious. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of just caution and mm-hmm. and when you got lots of money, you can get your treatments and take your stuff. Now, following up on that, how does he explain the inevitability of death? And how would yeah. you know any of the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers explain the inevitability of death. Their bodies are in a process of dying. Cells are dying all the time. And they will, unless they, they'll, they'll die, right? And, and so how do they explain that if they can't just make it go away and, and live eternally just by speaking that into existence? Would they just call it a lack of faith? Yeah, so the topic of death, we didn't, we didn't talk about. And if it came up, you would hear as though you were hearing, you know, people chanting, you know, weird phrases, you know, like, like people in a cult. If you heard the topic of death, you'd hear around the room, 
in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, like that. So they're just trying to say some magical incantation so that it'll oh, just it, wish it away. If we, if we brought up death, like if I even said, oh, I was laughing so hard, I was, I was dying. You would hear, in Jesus' name, don't talk like that, in Jesus' name. Like they were rebuking what I'm speaking. So is it fear? Oh, absolutely. Fear of death. It, the greatest fear, and I know this for a fact, and if one of them were to listen to this, they'll, they'll know. They can, they can say I made everything else up. They can laugh at whatever stuff we talked about, men and all this. Other, but they know when they lay in their bed at night and stare up at the ceiling. This is fact. No one can deny it. They are so scared of death. So scared. Scared to meet the Jesus that they know is real. Scared of the life they've lived. Most of all, the uncertainty. And you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, and you find out pretty quick, Paul's whole driver is, we hope like no one else in this world. We don't fear death. We have a hope. The resurrection, well, it happened once, Christ, but there's another resurrection coming. That hope, I mean, you'll, you, we spoke with a, a family member on a different side of the family recently, and um, we're asking them some questions, and one of the responses where they said, you know, one of the most interesting things about you guys was, and we had asked them, you know, do you, we were going for the gospel moment, and my wife had said it, and she said, do you see how I mean, do you notice how our lives are different? It was really sweet. You know those moments, you're really like, we're going to go for it. They're going to see we're different. You see how our lives are different than yours? And the person said, no. And, and I looked at Christine and I thought, man, we must be really bad witnesses. <laughs> they, they're, no, we, I don't, no, don't really notice anything. I thought, okay. And then they said this. But you know one weird thing about you guys, you're not scared of death. And I thought, finally, thank God, there's one thing. We've been living the Christian life. You know, yeah, it's, it, it, it's the weirdest thing. I don't understand how you're not scared of death. And so then we shared the gospel. Well, that, the greatest fear is death. And they don't know what to do with it because they can't escape it. They have no solution for it. They certainly have been preaching like it's going to happen. They've been in Jesus naming their way out of everything, abracadabra type, but in the end, um, you know, Hebrews 9, I think 27 and 28, it is appointed to a man, every man wants to die. And after that, judgment. Yep. There's a day coming for everyone. And you can't guarantee enough healing to, to get yourself to be immortal. It's coming. So that moment for a lot of them is, is, is so frightful. And that's, that, that's really a, one of the most important things that just undermines the entire case. Because the Christian gospel is the solution to the problem of death. Amen. That it, it tells us why we die and gives us hope for what comes after we die. And it's only the gospel that does it. So anyone who is a, a preacher and fears death like that yes. is just an indication of the bankruptcy of their theology. And I think that's a really good point is preachers. So people in the, in the congregation, sure, as they yeah. grow and mature, yeah. to be fearful of death or concerned sure. about that, that's normal. I mean, you, you do any type of bedside ministry and, and go through hospice, you see yeah. people that, I mean, I've looked in the, the dying eyes of church members before, and you can tell they're fearful of 
you know, them having not done enough. You know, one, one man was, was teary-eyed, teary-eyed, and he was, he was wondering, I should have given more. I should have served. Why didn't I do? And I, I was there to, to, to talk with him and say, no, you, you did incredibly. He had worked a job and, and was so faithful. And so there's that, which is our job, right, to walk sure, people through. Yeah. And then to explain to them that there's, there's no fear in death. There's no regrets. You've been faithful and, and all that. But for preachers, we spend more time in study, more time in prayer, more time having these truths mow over our soul. That doesn't mean we should be perfect. It doesn't mean we never doubt or have moments where we're wondering, God, where is this all going? Or are these people getting it? I mean, I think every pastor has doubted if his sermons are actually being heard and if people care. But if there's a certainty we have, it's that moment of death. And one mentor, 70-year-old plus pastor once told me, you know, um, he told me, he calls me Koski. He, I know him well, and he still gets my name wrong. It's great. Uh, he says, Koski, you know, and I never correct him because <laughs> you don't rebuke an older man. Yeah, so, right, yeah. uh, you know, Koski, you know what my job is now at my age? I said, what, sir? He said, to die well, to show my family how to die well for the Lord and his glory. Yeah, yeah those moments. That's right. They bring me to tears as a younger man following older men going, yeah, I want to die well too. Yeah. I don't want my son to see me so scared of death going, well, what were you preaching all those? You said yep. it's coming, that day's coming, dad. Yeah. Well, what really did you believe? That's right. So yeah. That's good. Another question related to uh, the ministry of prosperity preachers. Do these preachers, and, and we assume the answer is no, but We'll ask it anyway. Do, do these preachers, these faith healers, ever go into children's hospitals? Was, it, was that ever your experience where you'd go with them in some kind of an attempt even to heal young children, three-year-olds who have cancer, uh, inoperable tumors, uh, you know, d- diseases that cannot be cured, degenerative, and they're, they're young. They're, they're not even able to talk. Where's the compassion if they can heal? Yeah. to go into those hospitals and heal them. Did they ever do anything like that? Have they, did they ever attempt anything like that? No. I'll go further. So no, never did we ever go into hospitals and heal. And two, I was groomed as a young man and then actually grew up to have this attitude until a certain point in my life to hate hospitals and to actually call them the place where the spirit of death resides. Interesting. I mean, we wouldn't go visit certain people in hospitals because I don't want... And, and whether it be my uncle or my dad or whoever, and of course, I, I would imitate and pick this up, the, the comment would be, yeah, you, you know, let someone else go visit them in the hospital. I, I don't want to be around the spirit of death. It's going to kill my faith. I need to have faith. And that, another reason why uh, at Crusades, if somebody got up, like right now, if you got up in the front row and you went to the restroom, and this was full in the front row, it would be required that someone else comes and sits where you're sitting because an empty seat's a faith killer for the preacher. I don't want to see empty seats. That's what would be said. So there's always little, little, little things that kill faith. Hospitals, empty seats, negative people, questions. I mean, it, anything. Like, it, it, it's, everything's going to kill faith, which basically is an insulation vault where I do what I want, I go where I want, believe what I want, say what I want, you all just leave me alone, mm-hmm. and you isolate yourself. we'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
yeah, we never would go to a hospital and heal. And one of the, one of the funny things I'll notice sometimes in some of these preachers or teachers, I'll run into a sermon or something. I really, I preach regularly every week, so I don't have time. Like, I don't spend my life studying them and, sure. and yeah. dealing with them. But every once in a while, I'll come across a sermon and listen to 10 minutes of it and go, are they, you know, still preaching this stuff? Oh, yeah. And I'll hear these statements and go, <laughs> they'll say something about the spirit of death or being scared of death or not wanting to go in a certain room because, you know, there was people with unbelief. And I'm thinking, you know, what if Jesus was like that? You know, instead, he said, when the woman with the issue of blood called, yeah. power left me. Yeah. He wasn't saying, you know, faith left me. Yeah. I can't heal now. Yeah. This crazy woman touched me. Yeah. Get her away from me. I, I, I mean, that, thankful the Lord didn't operate that way. Yeah. Of course he wouldn't. Amen. Yeah. At these crusades, were there uh, screenings that would be set up to make sure that no one would come forward with certain kinds of diseases, for example, amputees. Yes. So th- those would just not be allowed to, Definitely. to, to come forward. Yes. Somebody who'd had an arm amputated or... No, you're not getting up there. Yeah. And, and unless you are, are really excited, you've got a great story for the, the cameras, you're not getting up there. So you could have your child who's deaf with you. You could cry a, a river of tears in the stadium and your child could beg to be prayed for. You're not getting up there unless you can say, I, I couldn't really hear, he couldn't hear, and now he can, he can hear, and, and the child's like, yeah, you know, doing this, and they kind of make up little things and act like they've been healed, or at least partially, or I, I really had a lot of back pain, and I just felt this, when you said that we were gonna feel electricity, so now you've got power of suggestion, when you said we were going to feel warmth and electricity, I felt that in my back. And I, I mean, it's, it's feeling a lot better. Oh, yeah? Awesome. Well, let, let's get you in line. Let's testify. And then the editors who are professionals who have worked for ESPN and other television, who don't even believe really in Christ, but they're great producers. Hmm. You know, they're hired and they're recruited yeah. to edit and to make a show yeah. that looks amazing and pans crowd shots that shows you 30,000, then zooms in just in time for the faith healer to say, oh, look at this sweet little girl, and see the hand up close, and the catchers gently, and then back out to the pan, and people clap, and then back in. Those are all edits, where they're editing in the next person that looks excited on a stage. Mm -hmm. But you're never going to see somebody without a limb, and that limb grow. But, of course, you know, people want the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Another, question, another question here it has to do more with the response of, of the uh, Word of Faith movement to particular texts in Scripture. Let me read some of these texts and, in a few words, summarize how the prosperity preachers would respond to these. So, for example, you, you, could, tell, or you could mention the whole book of Job, But in particular, Job 2, verses 9 to 10, uh, then Job's wife said to him, of course, this is after Job had lost everything, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God and die? But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? 
in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. How would they respond to that? Well, they'd evade your entire question. And so there's two approaches. Uh, one was my uncle who said, and I quote, uh, Job was wrong. So there's that. So, so they would say that the, those statements are yeah, errant. They're, yeah, yeah. They're, they would say, you know, he had it wrong. He was human. Um, he missed it, you know, all of that. And then they would jump immediately to God gave Job, this is kind of pithy, double yeah. for his trouble, yeah. Yeah. right? Okay. Which really sounds awesome on TBN or something like that, right? Yeah. So, you know, God gave Job double for his trouble. So whatever you have, and I'll, I'll kind of role play or whatever you have to say about all that, Brad, look, I, you know, you're trying to trap me and all that stuff in your, your little stuck up kind of Pharisaism. Here's the deal, buddy. God gave Job double for his trouble. And I'm about the good news. I'm about telling people what God is going to do. I'm about getting people through the trial, which I know God is going to carry them through. And so I'm not looking to get stuck on all that, you know, theological stuff. My job is to tell them what God is going to do. And what he's going to do is be faithful. And he's going to give them double for their trouble. Job got it all back and more. And so they just wipe all that other stuff out, move around it, and get a little eisegetical and a little heretical. They'd probably do this with Psalm 73 as well. Psalm 73 is Psalm of Asaph, and he begins by focusing on the prosperity of the wicked mm. and how that's not the case in his life. And then he has that, that, in, in, that transformational moment as he goes into the temple of God and recalls who God really is. And he ends the psalm, or near the end of the psalm, he says this, and it's not because he's been given any money whatsoever, but we just read these words in Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How would they respond? Again, just the same idea that yeah, I, just move on from that. Well, or, you know, the bottom line is what he's really saying there, Brad, is, you know, Asaph is saying the same thing that Solomon knew. If I ask for wisdom, he's going to give me riches. See, if I, if I focus on what I have, which is God, I already know what God comes with. You know, like Kenneth Copeland once said, you know, oh, sure, you'll have treasure in heaven, but God never said you couldn't have it now. You know, sure, Asaph, all that he had left was God. And who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? God. So right away, I'm just going to move around what you're saying, move right into, and, and let's talk for a moment about the wealth of the wicked. Oh, the wicked were prospering. Yeah? What also does God's Word say? The wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous, and I am the righteous. So <laughs> I, if I have God, I'm you're righteous, <laughs> and therefore I've got the wealth of the wicked. So what that passage is really saying is in the end, I have God, because then I'm righteous. And therefore, if I'm righteous, what do I get? The wealth of the wicked. So I'm driving a Bentley, and you're driving a Camry. Not even the camera. Okay, another text here. Philippians 1, 29 to 30. This is terrible hermeneutics, by the way. If you're, you're, believe, it, if you're believing you're, you're this, I was a heretic, I was wrong, this is fake. <laughs> yeah, Just to clarify. Philippians 1, verse 29 to 30. For it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Yeah. It is... It has been granted to you not only to believe. Paul takes it another step further. 
and describes suffering not as a negative, mm. but as a privilege. Yeah. It has been granted to you yeah. to suffer. Do they look at suffering in any way as yeah. having any redemptive value? Yeah, so, so a text like that, first of all, the prosperity gospel has no theology of suffering, if you will, theology being God logic, so what God actually is and who He is logically, right? They have a belief, but it's not a proper theology. So the way that they would deal with a text like that might be to, to, to succumb to the reality that that represents, and now I'm going to use more allegorical language, a little bit metaphorical, that represents, you know, the people that are in the world who are suffering and who are hurting. And our job as those who have experienced the blessings of God is to take, we're blessed to be a blessing now, Brad, so we need to take those blessings and extend them. Yes, and, and you know what? Some of them, like Job, why is it a privilege? Because it's the privilege of suffering because eventually the privilege of prosperity is coming. It's the calm or the darkness before the light or whatever, the, the darkness before the dawn. You know, now you're quoting like a Batman movie. You just do whatever you can um, to, to evade. And so that stuff like that would be, again, it's all going to be, you're going to spin the wind. You spin whatever you can to get to this ultimate reality which really speaks to the flesh of the people listening, right? All the people going, yeah, amen, that's me. That's me working my dead-end job. That's right. Or, you know, that is, that's what I'm talking about, preacher. My husband has been abusive or he's been unloving to me, and that's just God's setup for my step up. You know, what's coming is going to be better than what's... It's all that is just a text like that would be twisted and... You say, like, how in the world would people believe that? Or that's ridiculous. This is, this is sick. Well, they're banking on the biblical illiteracy of the audience. So why do you think it's such a big deal that for the last 30, 40 years, you know, the, the, the mega church, if you will, and not that you know, this is a large church, so we're not saying mega in the large numeric sense, but the church is a seeker-driven model where you know, we don't want to get too deep. We just want to kind of invite them in and then let the Holy Spirit do the rest, like, like that's really you know, what we're supposed to be doing. That's, that's preach the word. You know? It's not. That created a whole era of biblically illiterate people that think they're Christians and they're not. They're cultural Christians. They're, I'm American, I'm Republican, and I went to Willow Creek, so I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You don't know the gospel, and you are, are, are eating you know, spiritual fast food, if you will, or leading your family into spiritual fast food, which only ends in spiritual heart disease. And false teaching thrives in that quasi-Christian biblical illiteracy. It requires it. it. Yeah, that's right. You're absolutely right. And we're coming near to the end of our time here. Just a couple more questions. You mentioned something that it would be great to camp on. We don't have a lot of time. But you mentioned a theology of suffering. Of course, they would never, uh, the prosperity preachers would never teach their people how to suffer well. Just like they don't teach their people not to fear death. Let's talk about life before death. And there'd be no discussion on that, I assume, of how to suffer well to the glory of God, how to see suffering as something that is not inherently evil, but is being used by a good and wise and all-powerful God for glorious ends. Talk for that just a moment about how you see the, the, the importance of a theology of suffering and 
and recognizing its value in the true believer's life. Favorite passage of mine, one of them, but particularly on this topic, Romans 5, verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character brings hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I, you know, I'll read one more verse because for a while we were still helpless at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. You know, I'm, I'm being sanctified, kind of a big church word. Again, if you're new to church, I'm being set apart. I'm being made holy. I'm being, uh, you know, renovated like a fixer-upper. You see those shows. God is doing that to me, to you, to all of us. He's doing that, and He doesn't do it through the easy times when everything's going great. He does it through the hard times. He does it through suffering. You know, the world says it this way, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Kind of a pithy statement, but really it's empty unless you've got the Lord behind what you're going through. Well, God promises that, yeah, certain things, they're not going to kill you. They're going to be really difficult. And you might even not get stronger, but get weaker. And he told Paul, you know, my grace is there. When you're weak, it's not a bad thing. That means that I get to be your strength. You'll look to me as your strength. So sometimes, well, actually all the time, the best thing about suffering is that it brings us to our knees. And that's the place where we come humbly to God. We surrender. Our will is over. Uh, Our self is over. We get to a point where uh, we give up on our way and we throw ourselves wholly and completely on God. That to me is what suffering is and what we should preach to people. And in the end, you know you've taught well on suffering if people are, are, are crying but with hope yeah. or, or even questioning, yeah, but what about? Because that means you've pressed in on what makes them uncomfortable, which is human. That's why Paul and that's why James and so many other they kept repeating the same idea. That's why he calls it a privilege. He's reminding the church over and over in their questioning, in their crying out. You see in the book of Revelation, even the, the martyrs crying out, you know, when will justice be? And, you know, the Lord says, just wait a little while longer. It's coming. I'll avenge it all. And we know in the book of Revelation that Christ promises every tear, every sickness, every pain, every hurt, the final enemy of death, all of that is going to be done away with. But until then, the Lord is using those things to purify us and to bring us closer to Him. And the unbelieving heart, the person that doesn't want the things of God hates that. It's bad news. They want the other stuff. But to the person who is a Christian, that's really good news because you want to be closer to God. Two more questions. Uh, The second last one here. How must we, that is those who have nothing to do with the prosperity gospel heresy, still be vigilant in protecting the purity of the gospel message and our understanding of the Christian life from the subtle infiltration of the American dream. Ooh. You know, we, we hear it, it's always in politics, of course, especially now with the yeah. upcoming election. You hear these statements about the inalienable right to the, to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And it's so easy in this American culture, which has 
birthed the prosperity gospel word of faith movement. Even in good, among good circles of strong Christians, to imbibe that American dream theology. We may not talk at all like the prosperity preachers. How do we protect ourselves from that kind of American dream Christianity? Yeah. So I'm not trying to be a killjoy here about great things that happen in your life. There are wonderful things that happen, right? Some of you uh, purchase your first home. Now, that's a real praise here. I live in Arizona, so people buying homes is normal. Here, I mean, you buy a home, I'll throw you a party or a parade. I mean, God bless you. You've been saving or the Lord's blessed you with, with resources. So cool. But we get a home. We have a baby. Uh, we get promoted. What have you? And what do we say? Oh, God is so good. Woo! Right? We're on top of the mountain. I'm winning. I've discovered the champion in me. Maybe Osteen was right. And then things are bad. And we say, you know, God, where are you? Why is this happening? Was I not obedient? Maybe I, I should have given more in the offering last month. Am I serving enough? God, do you love me? And even in circles that teach and and are passionate about sound doctrine, we can get this idea that God is good when things are good and something's wrong with us when things are not good. Well, God's goodness is part of his character, so he's always good. He's good when you're suffering. He's good when you're not able to save for a home. He's good when the realtor slaps the red sold sign on the front sign. He's good when baby comes. He's good if you have a stillborn. He's good when the chemo works, and he's good when it doesn't work. He's good when you lose a spouse, and he's good on your wedding day. He's always good. And the tendency is, even with us, is to think there's something wrong because things aren't going my version of right. And we need to go back to the Word of God and remind ourselves that suffering is not punishment. And yeah, sometimes, absolutely, trials are, uh, well, if the true definition of a trial is something that befalls me, I don't do anything to earn it. So sometimes we think, oh man, I, you know, why am I going through, I'm really going through a trial because you got a speeding ticket and you lost your job and your wife's upset with you. Well, you were speeding, that's not a trial, you broke the law and brought that on yourself. Uh, you've not been doing your job well, and the boss said, I'd rather a hard worker. And your wife's mad because you're not dating her and being sensitive. So those are all your fault. That's not a trial. That's self-inflicted. And so we really want to be careful indicting God and saying, there's something wrong with you because things aren't going right for me. That's a subtle way that I think in the sound doctrine circles, if you will, we equate God with goodness and his blessings. And then when everything goes haywire, we start looking under all the rocks and not realizing, hey, it's, it's trial season. The mountains are coming, so are the valleys. So again, as people filled with the Spirit, and as leaders who should be temperate, we don't rise and fall with every mountain and valley. Our goal, what we strive for in grace, is to stay right here. So when things are good, hey, praise God. When things aren't, hey, trust in the Lord. Just right here, all the way through. So that'd be one of the ways that you can combat this, the idea that you know, the American dream is what you're entitled to. Final question. 
not everyone in this room, probably, is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some, if you'd really ask them, and if they'd be honest, they'd say that their God is wealth. How would you address that person tonight with the gospel? How would you explain the reason why Jesus came and died? And what should their response be to that? Yeah. Um, Jesus gives some really neat examples in the Gospel of Luke. He is quoting what certain people said to him when he says, follow me. So you picture even yourself now when you hear the Bible taught and you hear the call of God to you through what we're saying. We're saying, follow Christ, follow God, obey him, turn your life over. Your way's not working. Listen to our stories. Our way wasn't working. Turn to Christ, right? That's the call that we extend to you. Well, Jesus was explaining one time to his own disciples when, when he said, follow me, you know, one guy said, hey, well, hold on a minute now. I just, I need to go take care of some things at home. And he told another guy, follow me. And he said, well, I need to go bury my father and my mother. You know, another guy on it. And in the end, he said, let the dead bury the dead. He said, anyone who, you know, is thinking about following me can't be thinking about other things. You can't have other priorities. His point wasn't don't love your mother and father. His point wasn't go and, and abandon your job. His point wasn't you can't bury the dead and you can't work hard at other things. His point was this. You have to look in your heart. And, and you've got to think long and hard about what Jesus was saying. If there's anything in your life that competes or that you would compare with Christ, that could be an idol. Certainly, you'll know if you're living for wealth or you're not taking Jesus seriously that those things are idols. And what Jesus is saying is pretty simple. Uh, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. So one day, this life will end and it really is simple. There's going to be heaven or hell. There'll be a legacy of faith and, and glory for God and a life that was beyond yourself. And there'll be a legacy over here of yourself and your money and your home and your empire. And the Bible is really clear. All of that's going to pass away. And the only thing that will last in eternity is what human beings did for God, living for their purpose, following his ways. That's the only thing that's going to be left over in the end. And there'll be so many people celebrities, athletes, wealthy people, business people that thought they were really nailing it on earth. Well, the Bible is also clear. They've had their moment and it's over. It's gone. Uh, many people will look back like another story Jesus told about a rich man who ended up in hell. They'll be looking across the chasm and they'll be shouting to people that are, that are actually in heaven, in paradise, saying, can you send someone to tell my family and my relatives? Can you send someone to say, hey, obey God, believe in Jesus, follow after him, because I don't want them to end up where I am. Will you send some people down? And Jesus tells this story where, you know, even then, there in the bosom of Abraham, uh, Abraham says, as he's got this poor guy laying in his lap, listen, they didn't listen to the prophets, the Bible. You could add illustratively even now. They didn't listen to the Brad guy when he stood up there telling you clear. They didn't listen to Costi quoting the Bible. They didn't listen to MacArthur or anybody. They never listened to anybody tell them about God. They didn't even listen to Christ. So many people in that moment will realize that 
they've left this earth empty-handed with nothing. The only thing that you will ever require one day or need will be Christ. When you stand before the Lord, if you have not Christ, you have nothing. And so uh, all of those pictures Jesus was giving, whether in parables or in his teaching, he was saying one thing, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. You're not going to heaven, you're not living with purpose, nothing's gonna happen for you if you don't put all your stock in me. And so it's real simple tonight. Uh, Repent of your sin. Repent means turn away. Basically admit your way is terrible. Even on your best day, it's still the worst day compared to having Christ. Your wealth, your bank account is passing away. The only treasure that will ever remain is the treasure of Christ. There's no satisfaction you'll ever find. And really, there's no solution to your sin, all the lust and all the affections for the world and all your greed and all the secret things that you think in your mind, all of that. There's no solution to that except God. So while you sit up at night wondering what this life is all about, it really is about Jesus. And until you turn your life over to him, you'll always question. And so tonight's an opportunity to turn from your sin, to give your life to him, to surrender and say, I'm done with my way. You don't need to make a big spectacle. It can be very simple and you could come up and talk to some of these men after or you can talk to your small group or a friend and say, look, I I wanna be all in on Jesus. Uh, My mind is changing. I don't wanna leave this earth and look back and just see a legacy that was all about me. I believe that I'm on this earth because I'm supposed to live for Christ. That moment is a moment that you'll have if you're a believer and if God is doing a work in your heart and in your mind. So my call tonight is the same call that we have offered many times and that the Bible offers and has offered and will offer forever until the world ends. Repent of your sin, turn to Christ, put your faith in him, believe in him, and then you'll have real life and eternal life. Amen. Thank you so much, Costi.